Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we welcome you again. It is good to have you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. Granddaddy sat down at the table. Because he was a religious man, he offered a prayer of thanksgiving to God for the delicious food that was served. And then, as he always did, he began afterwards to complain that the meat wasn't exactly right. It was either always overcooked or undercooked, and he reminded grandmother of that every meal. And then when he tasted the peas, it was pretty much the same thing again. They were either always too hard or too mushy. Each bite, it was always something to criticize grandmother about. Later on in the meal, the curiosity of the granddaughter, it was sincere curiosity. Granddaddy, does God really hear our prayers? Oh, yes, dear. He hears every prayer that we offer to Him. A few minutes later, Granddaddy, does God hear when we talk, even when we're not praying? Oh, yes. Yes, His eyes are always upon us. His ears can always hear everything that we say. Now completely confused, the granddaughter says, Granddaddy, which one does God believe? How's your language been lately? Do you come and sing praise to God? Go home and offer a prayer of thanksgiving? And then over lunch, gossip about folks? Criticize what people have done? Which one is God supposed to believe? Do we expect God to believe when we sing praises? Or when we show hatred toward our brother or sister by talking behind their back? When we come and we sing songs of truth and study words of truth, but then during the week we go to work or to school or to the workplace or the community and we speak lies, which one is God supposed to believe? You see, it's in the book of James that clearly it's taught that that kind of, of language having sweet and bitter, having truthful and lies, that kind of language just shouldn't come from the same mouth. The psalmist here, as we look to the text that's been so capably read for us, Psalms 39, verse 1, and then if you notice an outline of the, the chapter here, it's kind of a challenging chapter because we don't know what has provoked the writing of this chapter. There's some kind of turmoil in the life of the psalmist. And so far, about three verses there, he speaks of the silence that he's going to have in the time of his trouble. But then there's a speech that he offers to God in the time of his trouble. And then there's supplication in verse 7 through 13 that he offers to God in times of trouble. As a matter of fact, I like what, what Kaufman has to say as he describes this chapter. He says, the psalmist is bowed down with sickness and sorrow and is burdened by unbelieving thoughts and doubts about which he resolves to be silent. His unsupportable grief demands expression, resulting in prayer of Psalms 39, 3 through 6, wherein is very despondent picture of human life. Now, as we think about this chapter, what I'd like for us to do primarily is think about the specific principles that are taught, especially in the first few verses. Did you notice there as we look in verse 1, where he said, 
I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. Guarding his ways. Why was he going to guard his ways? Do you realize that the most likely way for you and I to sin is through the tongue? Now, if that's true, and we can prove that in just a moment, then I need to be asking myself for wisdom from above. God, what is it that I could do? What's the biblical instruction that I could do to guard my tongue? Look with me, if you will, over to James, the third chapter. And as you're turning there, something that I I just couldn't help but think about, and, and you would probably think this same thing if you spent some time this week studying through Psalms 39, and then you went over and read in several chapters in James... You can't help but think that maybe James had some of Psalms 39 in his mind when when he was writing the book of James, a book that speaks so many times about the importance of using our tongue and guarding our tongue. But notice what he tells us in James the third chapter and verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man able also to bridle the whole body. James is teaching us that if we could go throughout a day, a week, a month, without misusing our tongue, we could literally for that day or that week or that month be perfect individuals. In other words, he's saying the hardest thing for you and I to control is the tongue. And so if we had enough discipline to control the tongue, we could handle every other aspect of our life. How you been doing with your tongue lately? Have you been controlling it? Have you been disciplining it? You see, the fact is we never reach a maturity level that we ever have to stop guarding our tongue. It's the hardest member of the body to discipline. We never reach an age where we say, well, you know, uh, back in my teen years, back in my 20s, back when I was a young adult, I really struggled with my tongue. But now that, now that I'm retired, I, I don't have any temptations. You see, we never reach a phase in life. We never reach a situation in life. I don't think there's an exception of any person that doesn't have to guard their ways by restraining their tongue. Now, if you know James 3 very well, you know that he gives four powerful examples. I'd like to just mention to you two of them very quickly. In verse 3, indeed, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Now, there the tongue is compared to a bridle that's placed in the horse's mouth. That small bridle turns the entire horse. Our tongue turns the course of our life, just like the small rudder in a huge boat that may be driven by fierce winds. It still can be steered by a small rudder, just as our tongue steers the way through life. But did you notice in these two examples especially, when it talked about the horse, it said that he will obey us. And when it talked about the rudder steering, it said that it would go the direction that the pilot desires. You see, the point is this, well, I guard my tongue. Well, I discipline my tongue so that I say, I need to make sure that I obey God and my tongue obeys me as I strive to obey God. Can I say that I want to make sure that I pilot the direction of my tongue because I want God to pilot my life. In other words, it's awareness. 
It's a daily... You know how when people say, oh, if you're angry, count to ten before you speak. Shouldn't we guard every word we say? It doesn't matter if we're angry or not. We're still to restrain what we say and what we speak. Now, how can we do this? What kind of biblical instruction could we have? If you would look to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and I hope you'll open your Bible for this. We'll have a few of these on the screen here. But in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we see that the biblical way of guarding the tongue, there are some principles that go throughout the fourth and into the fifth chapter. And I'd like for us just to highlight some of these. Not on the screen there, really picks up with the thought in verse 17. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, in verse 17 We no longer walk like the Gentiles, and the futility of their mind is the way verse 17 ends. In other words, if we walk like the world walks, in other words, our conduct, our conversation, our speech is like the world, it's futility of the mind. That means moral depravity. The mind is no longer what it ought to be. And he speaks about how we can go into the depths of sin, but he also speaks how we can be cleansed. And the answer in verse 20 is to learn Christ. And then in 22... When we learn Christ, we put off the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt. Now notice that. We're putting off that which grows corrupt. And the way we do it in 23 is by renewing of the mind. You see, the mind was futile, but we put off the corrupt things by the renewing of the mind. Now, if that mind is renewed, and in 24 we're thinking things that are true righteousness and holiness, what are we going to do? One twenty-five. here's an example of some things we're going to do. Therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. How do we use the tongue? We speak truth. Is there ever a time that it's okay to lie? Remember the journalists recently that their life was spared because they agreed to, on video, confess that They had been converted to the Islamic faith. They made an open statement that they were now Muslim. And that was shown all over the world on the internet. It was shown in many nations. And the individuals lived and they came home. Was that right? When they came home, they simply said they were trying to preserve their life. Would God grant that as a reason to lie? Or was that showing that those men were still in the corruption of the world? Because you see, we can't have corrupt words and a corrupt life and be a faithful Christian. Do you remember why Antipas died in Revelations, the second chapter? Keep your Bible open there, Ephesians. Let me just read to you one verse here about Antipas. I know your works. It's the church of Pergamos in Revelations 2. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Why did Antipas die? Why did a multitude, a whole host of Christians die in the first century? They died at stakes. They died being pulled apart by animals. They died being sawn asunder. All they had to do was deny. 
maybe they still believed in the Christian faith and they could have just lied. Yeah. But that would have been denied. Friends, I need to realize in a culture that surrounds us where lying is very acceptable, that to God, there's absolutely no tolerance. Lying is wrong every time. And for a man or a woman to give their life for the truth or to tell the truth is exactly what God would expect and no less. Now, there's another thing that he speaks of as he talks about this new person that's no longer corrupt. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, look at verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So what words should come out of our mouth? Notice it's no corrupt words. And did you notice that that was the old person that was being put away earlier in this same chapter, that corrupt ways, the corrupt person, the corrupt man? So as the corruption of the world is put away, the words that are also corrupt have to be put away also. Well, what are the words that we use? And by the way, uh, the word corrupt here literally means rotten or spoiled. Most of the time that this word is used in the New Testament, it's talking about the fruit and that the corrupt fruit does not come from a good tree. And it's in that setting that we learn that the words that are corrupt come from a heart, in other words, from a tree that is corrupt also. And so we see that that's not at all what God wants. He wants that purification of the life where we literally literally change the heart and then from the heart comes the words that are no longer corrupt. What are the words going to be? Notice they're necessary for edification. God expects you and I to say things as we restrain our mouth to make sure that as we guard it that we do use it in such a way that we say things that will build up other people. Not only necessary edification, but notice he says it imparts grace to the hearer. The word impart here is also translated minister. It's the idea of serving. Now, when we think about grace, we think about a positive or a wonderful gift. All of us have gone into a store and we have shopped for a gift and we've carefully picked out what we thought was the right gift We brought it in, we wrapped it, and we took and we gave it away. Here the idea is that our communication is a positive gift. He says it's necessary edification, it's necessary building up. And I want you to minister, I want you to serve others by giving them the right gift. And in that we impart grace, we impart that gift to the hearers. The way we use our tongue, are we giving a gift that is gracious or are we giving a gift where we literally are a stumbling block? You see, that's what I have to ask myself as I look at this text because this text deals with building up, not pulling others down. I remember when I was about nine or ten years old, several of us guys learned that old trick that You could slip behind someone and get on your hands and knees and get your buddy in front of them to push them real hard. And when they fell, their feet would go up as high as their head was. 
Well, that was hilarious to us. As you can imagine, when Mama saw it, it wasn't so funny anymore. She put an end to that real quick. Somebody's going to break their neck. We do that all the time with our language. We sit down and we share some news. It's true, but it's gossip. And what we're doing is we're slipping behind that person and we're putting that stumbling block right behind them. And we're just encouraging them to get involved in our conversation. That's not edification. We're about to get that person to sin right along with us. It's not a gift. It's a curse. I need to restrain my tongue. I need to make sure that what I said is true. That what I say is always going to build up, not tear down. But notice, if you will, as we go back to our text there, we see the rest of verse 1. Notice again in Psalms 39. The beginning of it, I'll guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. Notice this. I'll restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. Now, as we think about restraining our mouth, we think about one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's Ecclesiastes, the third chapter. You'll hear this quoted in, in books and on TV shows and, and just among your co-workers. Remember in this long poem here, he says in the third chapter in verse 7, in the last part of verse 7, he says, there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. You see, here we need to learn from Psalms 39. We need to learn from Ecclesiastes 3 that when we restrain our mouth, that literally means there's times that we just don't need to say anything at all. Complete silence. And that's easier for some than others. I remember a time of counseling where a, a couple came in, and it's not here at Mount Juliet, a couple came in, and they were having very serious problems, unfaithfulness in the marriage. And as we began talking, she did all the talking. And I'd ask him a question, and she wouldn't finish his sentences. She would start them and finish them. And it's important to know both sides of the story, and it was impossible to get it. And so finally, I hinted around at it, and finally I just had to be blunt. And I said, listen... Can, can you just be quiet for just a couple of minutes and, and just let him speak several complete sentences without interrupting? Well, he got about one sentence out, and she couldn't. And so over the next several weeks, when we worked on a lot of things, one of the things that we worked on was her sitting silent for several minutes. It was something she had to work at. She couldn't do it at first. And uh, we made a plan that she would do that at, at home and that she would allow him to talk some. Uh, even when they were together. Friends, it's so easy for us to misuse our tongue. And one of the ways that we need to make sure that we have the power, the discipline to use it, is to let it set idle. To be swift to hear and slow to speak, as James would say. But as we think about this, notice he wanted, in 39 and 1 there, he wanted to muzzle his mouth because of the wicked setting before him. As we think about this, be turning, if you will, to Colossians, the fourth chapter. Because the wicked setting before him. Again, we don't know 
exactly the trouble that was taking place in the psalmist's life as he writes this. If we did, we'd better know how to apply this verse to the psalmist's exact situation. But what seems to be happening here is that the psalmist seems to be saying, I'm afraid if I open my mouth, I'm going to say something that would be shameful or disgraceful to the cause of God right here in front of these wicked people. In other words, what he wanted to guard was that he wanted to guard his reputation. He wanted to guard the reputation of righteousness and of holiness and of God's people. How important it is that each of us realizes our responsibility to guard the reputation of the church. The church is the body of Christ. I need to think long and hard, and I need to study deeply. If I've had some kind of misconception that there's nothing wrong with bringing marks, negative comments, complaints against the church, and of all things, before people in the world, Look the way Paul would see this. We're going to read verse 5 and 6, but in Colossians 4, he's asking them to pray for him in 2 and 3 that when he has the opportunity to speak to people that are outside, in other words, people that are not part of the church, that he'd be able to say what he ought to say. Now notice how he views this in 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. In other words, taking advantage of the opportunities Let your speech always be with grace. There it is. It's a positive gift again. Seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. But notice in 5 there, he wanted to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. In other words, he wanted to make sure that when he used his tongue, that he would take advantage of the opportunity to say something that would be graceful, something that would build up the cause of Christ. You've eaten potatoes and they haven't been salted and, and, and you say, hey, they're bland, can, can you pass me the salt? And that salt, it simply brings out the flavor. What is he saying here? Have a positive gift and say the words that brings out what is best about that gift. Have words that edify, words that build up. Why? Because we're talking about the Lord's body. We're talking about the cause of Jesus Christ. Something is wrong if I have friends that are out in the world, and I've had these friends for years and years, and they're not drawn closer to Christianity today than the first time I met them 10 or 15 years ago. What does that say about me? What does that say about my example if they think less of Christianity? I'm not talking about whether they're converted or not. And hopefully in time they would be. But I'm saying their perception and their understanding of Christianity and the church, if they think less of it after knowing me for several years, something is wrong with my life and my words. Twice this past week, I've heard from outside sources of negative things that have been said about the church, by our people. 
so easy to misuse the tongue. So wrong. Because now not only have those individuals within this congregation sinned, but now there are people out in our community that think a lot less of Christ and His body because they've got it firsthand from the members. It's not good. Why do some teenagers grow up not loving the church? I mean, all they've heard all their life is negative things on the way home every Sunday. I wonder why they don't like the church. I sat with a group of of youth ministers And maybe this isn't a good illustration to use in this setting, but see if you can get some application out of this. I sat with a group of youth ministers a few years ago, and two or three of them began talking about how discouraged their spouse was with being a minister's wife. And they began talking about the things that discouraged their wife. And finally, I said, guys, these examples you're giving, how does your wife know these things? These are things only you as a minister should know. Why would you go home and speak negative when you have the opportunity to go home and speak positive? Friends, simply because I know something doesn't give me the right to share it. Simply because someone in our church family is struggling doesn't give me the right to go tell other people. If there are 900 people that's a part of this congregation, do you know how many imperfect people that would add up to? 900. Now what are we going to talk about? Are we going to talk about imperfections? And bringing our spouse down? Bringing our children down? Go out to the community and bring them further away from Jesus? Are we going to say, I'll restrain my mouth. I'll guard it. And Matthew 18, turn if you will to Matthew 18 and we'll close the lesson with this. When I do have a problem, or when one of my brothers or sisters in Christ has a problem, I have a great responsibility. And it's not to talk about them, it's to talk to them. And you can go back this week and you can read Matthew the 18th chapter, verse 15, 16, 17, where these are the things that God wants us to do because we love Him. We love the church, which that's His people. That's our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are the imperfect people that we're a part of and we're just as imperfect as they are. 
And so what are we to do? We're to sit down and to help each other out. We are to encourage and edify each other. At times we're to rebuke each other, but not behind their back. That's gossip. That's backbiting. But the verse that is probably the most misused verse in all the Bible is a wonderful way for us to close this lesson. After he talks about all the ways we're to go to that individual, talking about when you go to that individual, he says in verse 20, for where there are two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. That verse isn't talking about small group worship as it's oftentimes used. Jesus is saying, when you have problems, you go to the one that has a problem with a desire just to help them overcome it. And when two or three of you are sitting down in a setting of conflict, striving to work it out by my plan, God says, I'll be in the middle of that conversation any day. God's not going to be in the middle of lying, gossip, backbiting. One of the seven things God hates is brethren that sow discord. One of the seven things God hates is brethren that sow discord. The day of judgment. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Matthew 12. There's not a person here that can say, what we studied about this morning, it's easy for me. Every one of us struggle with this one. If we didn't, we'd be perfect. Let's make sure that we guard our tongue. Let's make sure that when it's used, it's used to build up. Let's make sure that we love Christ and we love His body. And that we guard our tongue and guard reputations. Because we will give an account for everything we say. Has your tongue ever confessed Christ? Have you been baptized into Christ for the mission of your sins? If you have, but yet somewhere along the way you've strayed. You've caused others to stumble. and You've spoken about a brother or sister, not to them, but behind their back. This morning would be a wonderful time to say, I want to go to heaven. I want to get that behind me. I know I've hurt the church. I know I've hurt people, but I'm sorry. I want to get things right and let's go home. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.